In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. touch it but i can't feel it inside ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast we are here with yahim am i pronouncing it right yahim yeah it's yahim yeah okay nice he's an he i should have the bio written down right here yahim would you be so kind as to maybe give people a short introduction into who you are what you're passionate about and maybe april 19th what you've been working on uh, all right. So uh, I am originally a medicinal chemist. So that's how I started my academic career at the University of Chemistry and Technology in Prague. And I studied drug production and synthesis. So um, it's really kind of building on my interest in chemistry uh, throughout my life. And uh, this vision that I want to, you know, discover, invent a new drug that's going to help a lot of people. And um, I started working in the Forensic Laboratory of Biologically Active Substances at my uni. And this is um, really uh, a laboratory focused on various psychoactive substances and studying them, uh, analyzing them and synthesizing them for different purposes uh, for research. And I initially worked on cannabinoids when I was in my undergrad. 
and uh, that was didn't turn out to be um, really fruitful line of, of research that I was doing and I wanted to uh, do psychedelics because I was really interested in them and there was this um, really amazing new research about the mechanisms of action coming out just at the time and um, my supervisors and the laboratory were so kind to give me the option to um, come up with my own topic for my diploma thesis if, if it's any good uh, and uh, so I was looking through these different papers that were coming out and I formed a hypothesis about a really cool kind of compounds uh, that uh, could have even like higher or better way of increasing neuroplasticity within the brain while also having neuroprotective effects. And uh, I decided to really pursue that. So uh, really design the compounds so that fit this profile of the hypothesis. And that's what got me into drug design. I studied drug design at UCL in London also, and then went on to uh, try and synthesize the compounds that I've designed. And it's really, it's this now hypothesis about this un pharmacologically unique uh, kind of compounds that I am trying to uh, basically develop and to a new kind of uh, psychedelic therapy, psychedelic-like therapy. And the, the focus is now that these could be perfect for uh, indications in neurodegeneration and traumatic brain injuries because they would uh, allow even, you know, better uh, protection of the brain and uh, better prevent neurodegeneration and aid the restoration of uh, uh, damaged neurons and, and things like that. Um, yes, so that, that's about me and how that really vision and uh, research project basically turned into a company is when I, after doing UCL, I met my two other co-founders, Richard and Saran, and these guys are really into AI and have been doing AI and machine learning for uh, decades, uh, I don't know how long. And uh, we kind of, <clears throat> they were looking into how to apply AI in the field of, of psychedelic drug development. And that's how we got together that they would provide the expertise to develop the best AI drug discovery tools that would enable the development of the compounds that I've been working on. And that's what we've been doing for the past two years or so, yeah. It's such a fascinating story. There's so much in there. But before, before we can get into the idea of what a novel psychedelic looks like, we should probably back up and begin closer to your thesis. Like, So what was the thesis that you wrote when you were beginning your work at uni, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you were finishing up? Yeah, yes, so um, this is about uh, basically uh, looking into the uh, mechanisms, how psychedelics act on the basically biochemical level, and uh, they bind to different receptors within the brain, and the main 
psychedelic receptor for the classical psychedelics is the 5-HT2A receptor. And if you activate it in a certain way, then uh, that somehow leads to psychedelic effects. And um, there are also other receptors that um, these compounds may bind to. And that uh, also affects uh, the overall uh, effects they will have. And uh, I uh, have been, so basically if a drug targets more uh, receptors at the same time, this is called polypharmacology. And it's usually these different polypharmacologies that make up these specific properties of a drug within a series. And um, I have decided that um, there was this one specific receptor that uh, some psychedelics uh, were binding to. And that's what I, you know, uh, studied trying to understand what is the role of the second receptor for these unique class of compounds. And currently I can't uh, talk about the second receptor yet. And uh, that's because I have now um, really am in the mission to get uh, patent protection around this as uh, unfortunately there's no way to get a drug to market without patenting it in this uh, time and place. And uh, this is something that uh, we need to work around with when um, really going for this uh, very, very ambitious goal of getting a, a drug actually approved through all the critical trials and, and, and so on. And so in order to secure that money, you need to play the patent game. Yeah, it's, it's the, that's the hard truth. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's super exciting to hear though. Like I, I'd speak to a lot of different people in the world of psychedelics and, you know, you're the only person I've ever talked to who has, who has explored this idea or this discovery of a second receptor that something can be binding to. Is there, can you, and if you can't answer any of these, just, just let me know. Does it seem as if it's, there's a firing pattern that leads to the psychedelic experience or, you know, like sometimes like a, like a spark plug would hit like the one, two, four, three plug. So, is there something in a firing range that leads to the experiment or is it just the attachment to the receptors? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, from the scientific evidence on the very much lowest level, there seems to be a pattern that uh, you can have a drug binding to this 5-HT2A receptor that's associated with the psychedelic effects and you need to uh, you need the receptor to change its conformation to mm. a different one, which is a um, process called activation. But the activation actually is uh, like a very much a spectrum of things. Uh, you have uh, what? Uh, <clears throat> so normally this is a receptor for serotonin. And if that binds to it, that would be called the classical response or and the natural response. But if you have slightly different compounds of serotonin that 
put the receptor in a slightly different shape that still can lead to lead the organism to think, okay, this receptor is activated, but it looks kind of different. So the response is also different from the body. And psychedelics are this weird class of compounds that produce a specific shape of that receptor that leads to uh, these effects. Uh, but um, this is just the beginning, right? Uh, yeah. When that happens, it basically kind of what how I see it is that um, this new shape of the receptor upon binding to a psychedelic is interpreted by the body that it really doesn't know what to make of it and it introduces a bit of a noise within the signaling pathways basically like um it can't read is it is it a zero or a one is it zero or one I'm, I'm, I'm not sure and and each of the neurons maybe reacts in a different way and it, it just it just introduces noise within the system it's like there's uh the the some of the signals are sent to you know wrong areas and and, and there's just a bit, bit of a mess and that probably is a very simple explanation of how these <laughs> effects come together. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's basically that the noise means to more firing of the neurons and um, the signals getting to uh, places where they wouldn't have normally traveled to, which is basically, you know, this, uh, you get new perspectives, new associations, while at the same time, the brain feels more connected overall because, you know, there's connections where there haven't previously been any. And, and from that on arise the psychedelic phenomena that we experience. Man, it's so fascinating. Okay, so when we, when we talk about the actual receptor site changing shape, is, is that confirmation that psychedelics do in fact change the structure of the brain? Um, this is very dynamic space. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. Um, and at this level, where there's, there's just molecules and um, molecules change shape all the time within a cell. Okay. Um, when we talk about changing the structure of the brain, uh, more often that is... Um, talking about the neurons, the cells that are bound together in, in some such ways. And essentially how I uh, imagine when we talk about brain circuits, for example, which is the brain structure, it's um, these neurons have uh, axons and dendrites, which are the connections to others. And um, along those connections, they send their signals and when you are sending a signal somewhere, the um, more you send it through the same connection, the connection grows and becomes stronger. And that is the process of learning. And uh, that is just completely normal, but it can happen that we create a connection that is not working out for us, that is some kind of toxic loop of negative thought, right. or whatever. 
And when we use it often and often enough, it becomes so strong that we cannot really fire the neuron uh, in anywhere else but in this direction of the negative thought, right? And here, psychedelics can help by uh, temporarily allowing the neuron to brain anywhere <laughs> to, fi to fire uh, uh, in other directions as well. And um, when it does, it actually creates new tiny connections uh, to different places, which is a process uh, called neuroplasticity or uh, more technically it's dendritogenesis and synaptogenesis. So that there are uh, tendrils growing and then the tendrils connect to a different neuron, which is the synapse. So these new connections are made and this allows effectively a novel area, novel avenue for thought, uh, which is great, but obviously these are after one trip, kind of very small. And if we don't use them, they're gonna, uh, you know, disappear again. So that's why all of this integration process is super critical for retaining the benefits of psychedelics. And you need to send uh, the signal through that new connection that you've made uh, while tripping uh, to make it grow and, and uh, be a, a constant option that you can use with your brain later on. It's really well said. And as you were, as you were explaining that in my mind, like I'm a huge fan of maps. I love maps. And like, if you look at a big map and you look at a river system, you can see the main artery of the river going down and there's all these little tributaries off of there. And the way you were mm -hmm. explaining that, it seems to me that that's almost like a good metaphor for what's happening because you're starting to see these little things going. And if you, if you just said, okay, I'm going to dam the water up and shoot it down this bypass over here, you know, the same way people who are stroke victims learn to walk again, they got to teach themselves to do it again. And the way you describe the integration with psychedelics, it's so moving to me because I, I know it's not a panacea, but I, I really am excited to hear about the research you're doing and, and hear that explained that way. If I may for a moment ask you this question, which is relevant, you know, is it, it seems to me that long-term psychedelic use, like if you get on a program of using psychedelics, maybe you microdose, you know, three weeks in a row. And then on the fourth week, you do like a six or seven gram dose. You know, it seems to me that you're also becoming familiar with the psychedelic environment. Like just like any environment that you explore, the more you explore that environment, the more you become aware of your surroundings in that environment. So my question is, do you think that there is something beneficial about getting to understand the psychedelic environment, not only for you, but for helping other people who may visit that environment later? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think you are getting into the realm of how do we work with the experience while we are in yes. it. Uh, yes. yes, so... Um, I uh, have this uh, other metaphor that I'm sometimes using and, uh, and it's often when I'm talking about the concept of cognitive liberty okay. is that uh, you have this basic sober mind state and that is uh, essentially one reality and uh, you can 
change their reality by walking over to a different place within the physical world, which changes where you are. Yeah. Uh, but you can also change the way the place, the reality by modifying the way your brain processes the signals from where you are. And um, each drug uh, may basically elicits uh, this unique change in the way your brain processes information. And that in itself could, in some sense, called be a new place. And each of this drug now has a new place. And it's about, um, yes, if you're new there, you're probably going to be a bit lost. You know, <laughs> like what, well, what, what's what's going on? Where, where am I? What's uh, what's this? And uh, you will need to familiarize yourself with all the ways how what you're normally used to gets processed in this new mind state uh, because it's unexpected. You don't know how it's going to change it. It's 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 not it's not natural. So. In this sense, you can learn and you can see, okay, like if I look at this white wall, I'm going to see patterns. It's just, you know, simple, simple, simple as that. Or, uh, but there's a lot of these things that uh, people who have never been in this state uh, will not be familiar with. And um, if you, um, so if I go to the fact that it can help someone uh, to familiarize themselves with it uh, I think it's important for this therapeutic aspect because when you initially have this experience and you're in this new place you're mostly going to be filled with wonder and awe and yeah. these philosophical questions and what about the nature of the reality and so on and, and this is kind of good to think about but um, there's usually no uh, real answers to, <laughs> to, to, to that. You could, you could think about that your whole life and, yeah. and not get anywhere. Uh, so in that sense, you it's good if you pass that point, you get familiar with it, and then you actually use it uh, for more uh, immediate needs of the therapy that you want to focus on or something. Uh, <laughs> I I, uh, I see it especially often with uh, DMT where people report the first experiences like, wow, how is this possible? You know, my brain cannot do that. That's not possible. <laughs> yeah. My brain has generated these crazy, you know, 3D uh, full HD patterns or, or visions. Uh, and, and then only after a while you can get to notice that there's some things from your subconsciousness appearing within the vortex of uh, visual walls that can give you clues on what you are not focusing your attention enough on or what you uh, should be doing and, and things like that that you kind of only get to pick out when uh, it's your uh, I don't know third fourth fifth session <laughs> yeah it's you got to be careful or there's death by astonishment. You know, you just, <laughs> you're like, I can't, Wah! and then it's gone. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, so fast also that you, you don't even have time to right. think about it, all of it. It just, it just 
<laughs> so that so that is an incredible way to that I, I think about that a lot. I think about the landscape. I think about the intention of going to that space and being doing my best to be present there. However, I juxtapose that with this other idea of the uh, and this is I, I've heard it explained in a different way. And I think that they're kind of at odds. And this other way that's explained is that psychedelics, uh, they decouple memory from experience. And so it's almost this other idea is that, you know, maybe it's not so much novel as it is erasing the current layer of memory that you've tied to that thing for the last 30 years. I don't know if those are at odds or if they work together, but what do you think? This is super interesting. I uh, believe that a lot of therapeutic value that we can get is exactly as you say, um, take our memories and um, reevaluate them in a different light. And that's definitely what psychedelics allow you to do. Um, and I think it's, um, uh, it's because you have your, so I don't know if it starts forming when you're four years old, but you create this um, operating system within your brain. And that really, uh, people don't realize how many things are encoded in that system. What are all the minute things uh, that you learn when you're growing up? And be it in the speech and interactions with other people and how you tie your shoelaces and, and all of that. And uh, this is really, and when you process new information, you really always check with the settings of your operating system, whether that you know, fits in or not. And you always see them in the perspective of what you've learned before. And um, you can have some, uh, for example, memories of trauma that uh, you were looking with one perspective that you had at that point when you experienced that. And uh, that was like really, really horrible. And uh, you, um, you cannot really solve that with the mindset that you had before but it's encoded in the language of the mindset. Mm -hmm. And even if you grow older and your mindset's overall changes, you still have this old memory there that's, you know, a part of a old software uh, that's not yeah. been updated for, for years and years. And, and you, you, you need to take that out and uh, kind of convert it into the new one uh, and, and see it from the... Um, uh, new new perspectives of the the person that you are now uh where you have ideally um the input of a therapist who are the best source of um how to call it um functional and uh efficient operating systems of the brain uh where they can yeah. really kind of <laughs> uh fix fix the the box that you might have uh <laughs> but i'm gonna stop this stop this line of metaphor 
<laughs> I think it's a great metaphor. I, I, you know, it's 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 difficult to try and describe a landscape where words fail. And I think in the psychedelic experience, words begin to fail. You know, so many people find you find yourself deep in this trip experience, alternative realm, whatever, however you want to explain it. And while we, we can use words to describe it, it's very difficult to explain it. I can say that there's this alien that is coming and talking to me, you know, but that doesn't really describe what's actually happening. You can just get as close as you can to it. And it may be possible that metaphors, analogies, even poetry is in fact the proper way to speak. That may be the only way we can really connect to each other is to use that type of language. And I, I'm wondering, what, what do you think is the connection? It seems to me that there is a really big connection between psychedelics and language. In your ideas, what do you think is the connection between psychedelics and language? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, I, uh, you've actually said it very well. <laughs> Uh, that language is essential for communication between two people. So one person has this experience that is, you know, multidimensional and super, super complex, but even without any psychedelics, yes. So, so like what you feel and what you perceive, you know, that is, that is like way, way, way more data yes. than uh, what, you, and, and, and you, you cannot directly, transfer it to another person so you need to compress it within language symbols and and uh, the other person has to read these symbols and extrapolate from that um something that you've you know tried to get across and it's obviously not going to be perfect it's basically a compression where a lot of the information is lost and um, I think we've done a pretty good job <laughs> developing our own language systems as humans and it allows us to, you know, work together. It's, it's, it's what connects us. Uh, but um, when, so I guess there's two aspects. First is under uh, psychedelics in the acute experience, the words break down because of the chaos within the brain. And, and then when we are, you know, sober and can integrate it, we still don't find the words, but that's because we cannot find the words to describe that. So, so I guess there's two aspects how, how language fails here. And uh, I think this is um, very tricky in terms of, how to convey to people that there's actual value in these compounds. Uh, and um, I think that uh, this plays a massive role in terms of prohibition and how to approach that is that the inability to come close to a description using words for the people that are the decision makers but have not had the experience themselves uh, and, 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 and really there's this, uh, there's this other world where you not even, uh, barely aware of what's there. And, um, uh, yeah, so I, I see, I see a problem there and, uh, another problem with, uh, uh, being unable to use good language to express it is in terms of, 
the uh, development of compounds that are supposed to have a certain uh, effect, uh, therapeutic effect. And when you cannot uh, even describe that well in words what the compounds should do, then it's very difficult to try and develop uh, develop something like that. So uh, it's uh, definitely in the early phases, it's more of a uh, trial and error uh, following some uh, more uh, basic information you know about these compounds, but the way how they interact with the human brain and what are the nuances of the experience that we cannot really well describe with words even though we're we're trying uh, that uh, that is a long way to go you know from chemical structures and molecule to these nuances in uh, the trip or like what kind of colors are present within the trip or <laughs> things like that that that's just such a long way uh yeah it's it's uh, there's so much there. I love the way you explained it. I, I I do think that this issue of language is something that humankind has struggled with since the Tower of Babel. However, you know, it's so fascinating to to see it come to a head right now, where in in the world of clinical trials, scientists want to see objective results. But so much of the therapy is subjective. So much is trying to explain an experience. And there's almost no way to quantify it. So, you know, e even when you can show results and show a patient who may have gotten over PTSD in one or two sessions, you know, how do you measure that? Like it's, it's almost to a point where the people writing the check don't have anything to go on except the words of the therapist and the patient. You know, it's, it's a conundrum, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, there is, um, I guess, um, I'm not sure that, uh, I completely agree with you that it's impossible in the sense that this is true also for other forms of psychotherapy and interventions in the mental health uh, sector. So this is this is something that we're struggling with uh, on other fronts as well, not only in the psychedelic world. I think that what the psychedelics bring in uh, in terms of uncertainty is... Uh, uh, one of course the placebo effect mm. uh, that that you cannot control within the uh, properly uh, within uh, clinical trials using psychedelics and uh, I think we're trying to get um, so okay we don't really care that the patient has to self-report what has happened to him because that's what uh, we do in all the other indications that's uh, normal. Uh, but in terms of what the what we ask uh, the, the patient going through that therapy is really important. And the question is whether we are asking the right things mm. uh, so that 
the person maybe having his experience for the first time can understand what we mean uh, for example like what happened within the sessions and and i think that we don't have uh, the language developed for uh, the individual things that happen when we are within the change state of mind and I really like uh, some of the uh, efforts. So for example, people from Psychonaut Wiki, they're developing this subjective effects index, which is a collection of all the different phenomena uh, someone is experiencing and under the effects of psychedelic drugs and categorizing them and naming them basically. And uh, I think there have also been some on DMT Nexus and uh, some forums. And really, it's super important that we go to this place of changed, of altered state of consciousness often, so that we, you know, familiarize, uh, familiarize ourselves with it. And uh once we start to develop language for things that happen to all the people in common uh we can have a much um uh, more meaningful discussion so we can begin to talk about these things and i think that we're a long way off uh before we can really have um i don't know meaningful discussions about closed eye visual experiences of like high dose psilocybin where we see, you know, I, I've, I've seen this phenomenon and that one. And yeah, yeah, I've seen that, you know, last week. And, and you know, yeah. uh, that, that, that's, that's kind of um, quite out there. People are usually just uh, describing it in their own words. And then it's like, you get the feeling that it was something amazing but um, I don't think we're able to share the content of these experiences effectively yet. I think we can improve uh, to what level, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant to think, it's almost like we're building a new alphabet so that we can have a conversation. We're building, we're seeing these things for the first time. And it's in, it's, it's really fun and interesting to get to talk to someone who is so knowledgeable and is creating in some ways a roadmap for people to follow. And in other ways, which we should maybe can shift gears and talk about what does it mean to begin drug designing a new novel compound, perhaps a new type of psychedelic. Can you run us through that? So uh, now the, Drug design process is mostly done in silico and computers. Mm -hmm. And it's about describing uh, the relationship between the chemical structure of a molecule and its biological activity or its effect uh, when administered to humans. So... Um, as you imagine, this is like really, really complex uh, equation with a lot of variables coming into that. 
and um, you need to take into account um, so the most crucial things that are driving the activity of a compound is as I described previously how it binds to the receptor and what kind of conformation of the receptor it creates and given the fact that there's you know tens of thousands of different receptors uh, within the body and, um, and all the other things that uh, all the different systems that, that we have, uh, then yeah, you need to you need to take all of that into account. But we how we simplify things is that we uh, just focus uh, or firstly focus on, the receptor or receptors that we want to be the drivers of that biological activity. And uh, we model how uh, these compounds bind to those receptors. And that can be um, done either through like learning the patterns of previous uh, drugs uh, or actually modeling the structures of the receptor and trying to fit the compounds within the receptor and see how well they fit. And uh, this is the early design stage where you're really trying to look for what possible molecules might be, might have that activity. And then it's the much more tedious, longer and cost efficient or cost uh, intensive process of actually testing whether that compound works. And um, we need to go very small in small, like in vitro assays to see uh, really uh, whether there's an affinity between those two compounds, what is the pathway uh, that it gets activated when these compounds bind, then does it have effects on larger structures like cell cultures, then um, organs or smaller animals, and then uh, eventually humans. And that's also uh, a long process to, yeah. before we can proclaim, okay, this is uh, safe and effective to be used for treatment. So that's just the, the general overview. Obviously, uh, there are so many parts that go into that, uh, that probably it would be best if there's something within that process that you're most interested in that I can uh, talk in more detail about. Yeah. It's such a giant thing. And as you're explaining it, I'm thinking, wow, how would you even form a model? I know like on mice, you could crack their heads open and like look in there and stuff, you know, but obviously for human <laughs> beings, like that, that's a little bit unethical. And so, you know, I, I guess maybe, I'm not even sure where to take it from there, but I, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering, like, in today's world, we can use EEGs or EKGs to kind of see a little bit what's happening there. But where are we right now in the ability to monitor what's actually happening in the brain on a psychedelic? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you are hitting uh, the... Um, later stages of what we would uh, normally consider to be the drug development process. 
and um, so I know that you, you have spoken to Nick Murray. Yes, uh, who is uh, I love that guy. <laughs> who is much much more uh, knowledgeable in this than I am. It's about. Um, I suppose monitoring as much as we can throughout the throughout the entire body, mm. and uh, for brain you have functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is super um, expensive, <laughs> and you have to you know be inside of a huge magnet to um, uh, get the the readings out, which is. I guess the most sophisticated way of looking within the human brain um, uh, in real time. And, uh, but I've heard in our, uh, in our accelerator that we were part of that there was a um, startup trying to get uh, fMRI working even with much smaller magnets than are usually required. And uh, really, I think that it will be possible uh, through new technology to make a functional magnetic resonance imaging much smaller, much more compatible and accessible. Uh, so I think there's still a, a long way to go. But um, right now, as you said, we can we can do um, EEG, then uh, fMRI, and then um, what Kernel is doing is um, monitoring the flow of oxygenated blood basically within the within the brain and um, I see this as um, not how a traditional drug development process usually goes or for whatever uh, or like whatever people may say it's very much um, about trial and error still. Uh, and we, in a lot of drugs, and you may be surprised, we just don't know really how they work and uh, what, what kind of effect they have. But if you design a um, clinical trial that looks at some outcome that might be very abstract, as you said, um, in mental health treatment, we're just asking people a bunch of questions and depending on what they say, we determine, okay, that was a success, that wasn't. Um, and you know what happens within the body to cause this response, we often do not know. And in much simpler drugs, um, uh, so it doesn't have to be psychedelics uh, to right. be approved, but we still don't know actually how it works. And I think that, yeah, the, the, the psychedelic research is um, mostly within that phase that we're, um, or if I'm talking about novel psychedelic mm -hmm. research, um, we're, just, we're just trying out. And this is also because um, this is a chicken and egg problem. You would ideally want to run all these different um, brain scans under the influence of a certain new molecule before even, you know, spending uh, a lot of time developing it and proving that it is safe and effective. But 
in the current environment, uh, you would anyway still need to, you know, bet on some drug and put a lot of money into it to develop into its stage before the regulators even allow you to give it to humans uh, to actually make that brain recording. Um, unless you're um, Alexander Shulgin, of course, then you... <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> you know, I when I think of novel drug design, I think that almost the entirety, with the exception of Shulgin, with you know, the, almost the entirety of drug design is is an exercise in like confirmation bias. You know, like this drug does this. How do you know? Because I, I, it, it seems to do it. You know, like the best guess, it's just the best guess. But I, here's what, and tell me if you think this is crazy. I think that the, okay, it's tough to get this out. I think that you can theorize what's happening in the brain better than you can demonstrate it on any kind of machine eeg ekg and even your when you when you use those machines all you're doing is measuring confirmation bias but i truly think you know you can go back okay you can go back to like if if you read plato's works and you read socrates and timaeus there's this one scene where socrates goes into the dirt and he he takes this slave but he doesn't speak they call him a barbarian cuz he's not a barbarian but it's babel right and he, he takes this young boy over here and he, he draws like a square. And then that guy draws a line through it. And he's showing everyone like, look, here's a guy who thoroughly understands the dimension of this cube right here. I don't have to tell him anything. He just drew the line there because he knows what I'm talking about. And when you see things, when you read language like that, when you read stories from the past, when you take a psychedelic and you see a 3D object spinning in front of you, like, I think that what we're seeing are the solutions to the problems. Like, if you can see the same, you know, uh, tetrahedron moving in front of you right there, and you see it and I see it, like, maybe what we're seeing is the activity in the brain right in front of us. And if you can go into the psychedelic world realm with the intention of understanding neuroplasticity, I think you can see what's happening in the brain. And I, I think that's just as good of a drug design as, as measuring it through waves or measuring it through, you know, some sort of EEG or oxygen in the brain. Like, I know I'm kind of way out. I'm just way out on the field right now talking about this, but it's uh, possible, right? It, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I understand what you mean. And uh, the thing that is... Uh, I think why people are uh, not using that more is, uh, I think, just because this is unique to psychedelics. Mm. Um, as uh, if you were to use this in the design of, uh, for example, um, I don't know, cholesterol-reducing uh, drug, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're not... You, you're, you're not you're not gonna see the cholesterol being you know broken down by uh, by some process within your body when you take that, and um, 
this manifestation of the effects of a drug that we can directly perceive, as you said, in front of us is, is something uh, very, very unique in, in the sense um, we, um, uh, of course, we have that with, um, I guess other drugs also have very tangible effects and uh, that would be possible to use your own, um, let's say, um, organism to try and, um, you know, uh, see whether it is active and what effects there are. Uh, but why that and i'm getting to the main reason why this is not used uh then is because essentially you are um without a proper understanding of the molecule on other levels you cannot really predict what it's going to do because um even tiny changes to the molecular structure can have really dramatic effects on the activity of the molecule. And so, for example, you have a series of compounds and you know anecdotally some of them are psychedelic. So you just assume that, okay, this drug is also going to be a psychedelic in a similar way and it's not going to be a neurotoxin that that's going to, you know, uh, uh, kill my brain cells. Right, uh, and 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 this is this is the fact that it is inherently uh, risky to um, do this self-assessment of of a drug, and that's why the regulating process it, it doesn't want people to, you know, do that. Uh, it is. I think there are different rules for actual self-administration. I think mm. in some ways the uh, in some countries, um, it, it was accepted. I think there were even some articles of, beside uh, Shulgin's work uh, where people have experimented with new new drugs on them and reported that in the scientific literature. Um, I think in Germany, it's um, as, you know allowed ethically as long as it's the. But I mean, I might be. Um, uh, I might be lying there, but I, I think I've, uh, I remember something like that, that as long as it's yourself as the researcher, right. you can do it on yourself, on your own responsibility. But um, in this world, it will still not give you enough data anyway, because um, for anything to be reliable, you need more, um, uh, more measurements, more people to do that. And uh, it is inherently, you know, taking on the, the risk of trying a new drug onto the humans. And it's uh, probably difficult to make sure that the people you give it to fully understand the extent of the risk that they would be undertaking. Uh, so that's why these mechanisms are in place that when clinical trials for any drug are done, that it's, first of all, there's enough preclinical evidence that there shouldn't be any kind of toxic effects. Um, and then that, you know, all of the uh, 
people within the trial are biased and know what the risks are and so on. And But there is this question that is um, really something to think about. And that is, we have basically outsourced the risk from humans to other animals. And that's what makes up the most part of the preclinical assay, or no, not the most part, but historically it has been um, an inseparable or um, necessary part is that you test these compounds on a lot of different animals, uh, smaller first and even larger ones to observe the toxicity and kind of judge whether uh, or extrapolate whether effects seen in the animals might not translate to some toxicity in humans. And obviously uh, there's people who are um, rightly concerned that we are just, you know, taking the risk and suffering uh, onto uh, animals and so that we can, you know, be safe. And um, this is this is like a, a very, very uh, difficult topic for basically ethics and philosophy, right? Uh, and I'm, I, I like that uh, we are now moving uh, towards, uh, through technology, we are able to actually do a lot of advanced systems uh, in vitro. So, for example, we can grow organoids, which are like tiny organs in, um, in a testing tube or um, wherever, where you can even... Um, so how does it work is that you basically take um, a human cell and you can even take it from the specific human uh, that you want to treat, but uh, usually from the person that maybe has the disease and you can reprogram it to revert back to, you know, the state where it can change into any kind of cell. And then you can tell it, okay, now grow me neurons and it starts to grow neurons. And if you provide the correct growth factors, it will continue to grow into a neural culture that is going to differentiate within, uh, into basically um, its own, an entire miniature of a brain. Um, and uh, these are called cerebral organoids. And this is a much better model of actual stuff that's going on within the human body. And uh, it's also much better translatable to humans because it's actually human cells and human receptors, because you have this problem when you test some toxicity of a compound on mice, it just, it might be toxic there, but not toxic in humans and vice versa. So there's a, because we have different structures of the receptors, different sequences, different sets of genes and so on. So um, there's, uh, these advances in um, organoids have actually um, resulted in, I think it was NDA or some of the regulatory authority accepting basically an investigational new drug applications, which is an application for whether you can administer that to humans uh, and you can now get that without any animal studies 
just by doing that. And it's also sometimes supported by microdosing, which is actually an equivalent of what uh, Shulkin was doing. But you can usually use, you need like a body of preclinical evidence on these in vitro models and organoids, then you can get a microdose uh, study approved where you put like very, very tiny um, uh, amount of compound to humans. And then you can actually, uh, if nothing happens, uh, nothing bad, then you can go on to phase one trials with the full dose of the drug. Man, that makes up so many questions in my mind. Have you talked to the Shulgin Institute? Have you talked to those guys over there? Uh, yes, yes. We, we've had we've had one call with them uh, sometime back. Yeah, yeah. Man, uh, his he's he's got books and I got I got the PCAL and the TCAL. Like he just has books of molecules that he's made and like. Okay, but this brings up another question: Why do we need novel psychedelics? Like. Why do we need them? Like maybe we just play around with the dose of the ones we already have and maybe different doses of psilocybin cure different types of mental illness. Maybe we already have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's that's a very uh, good question. And I think that the drugs that we have are super valuable, the classical psychedelics that we have now. And their value is really in the mental health world where we have found very efficient ways how to you know do the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy mm-hmm. and get <laughs> meaningful results using that and it's also you know very safe um the um but you have to uh from the perspective of general direct design you usually how it goes is that you have these uh, initial lead compounds uh, that are sometimes called first in class Mm. that are oftentimes derived from nature or they're um, with the case of psychedelics uh, you have some serendipitous discoveries like lsd and uh, this is just um uh, something that um, we are we have like found and we applied the therapeutic process onto that and in that sense the therapeutic process and the therapy has to adapt to the properties of the compounds that initially we found that has these effects and uh, when we see that this is working and this is called like validation process. Mm. Basically we see that happening um, with psilocybin for depression, for example. Um, And this tells us that, okay, we can use drugs that bind to this 5-HT2A target to use as a basis of a treatment for mental health disorders. But then you, you ask yourselves, okay, and, if we want to treat that, could there be a different drug that would in turn be optimized specifically to be used in this treatment? And then you have the option to mess around with the properties of the drug to better actually fit the needs of the treatment. And uh, I think that is always the phase uh, in drug discovery and development 
for example, with penicillin. So mm -hmm. you have this and it's antibiotic properties is awesome, but you know, okay, it doesn't work on these guys and it uh, doesn't work with these organisms. So, um, okay, we're going to tweak the structure and now we're getting, you know, the better uh, antibiotics and, um, you know, penicillin itself is hardly ever used now after all those years because we have all these other range of options that turned out to be. And statistically, it's very likely because the possible space of molecules is so vast mm -hmm. that, you know, you're probably not going to get the perfect thing for specific treatment uh, in one shot. And when I uh, come back to psychedelics and the first generation of them, there is... Um, there are several ways how these could be improved. Um, so one of the limitations is that uh, the treatment of um, high dose psychedelic is uh, demanding and is contraindicated for um, a lot of patients. And it might actually be um, also a bit of a, um, risk to individuals, for example, uh, that are old and have some comorbid uh, dis diseases and so on. And um, it's um, a question how to make it available for people that, you know, could not, they would not pass the requirements to be um, accepted into psychotherapy. Uh, and then um also for example where what we're focusing on is that there is possibility of using psychedelics for uh, neurodegeneration and traumatic brain injuries but this as you said is uh very much a different paradigm than the psychedelic psychotherapy where you take one big dose uh once in a couple months you need to you know regularly dose that so that you continually have the effect of these drugs and that is very difficult with their tolerance buildup. And there is also a risk of cardiotoxicity because these drugs bind to 5-HT2B receptor that has been associated previously with cardiac volubility and development of um, heart, heart problems when uh, administered regularly. And so we are um, aiming with April 19 to uh, actually solve all of these problems at once. And uh, it's actually by introducing this novel target, we have compounds that are inducing neuroplasticity and additionally also are neuroprotective uh, and still have the same mechanism of action, but supplemented by a different pathway also. And this um, removes the reliance for the effects on neuroplasticity to be tied with this 5-HT2A um, uh, target. And that allows um, even in, longer do in lower doses to still have a potent neuroplastic effect. And uh, there is... Um, uh, space for actually looking at different compounds and seeing whether 
their combination of a duration of effect and the tolerance that they induce and the, um, you know, I, I want to say cognitive impairment, but um, this is something that we cannot really model now. It's obviously going to come into play at later stages. But we, uh, and uh, also 5-HT2B binding, which is corresponded to that cardiotoxicity, and those are just the main uh, parameters of a drug that we can fine tune early in the process. And we can find a compound that would be um, safe and effective, uh, even while you would be regularly dosing these elderly and comorbid patients that have, you know, a neurodegeneration or that have gone through a stroke or some other brain injury, traumatic brain injury. And, and um, I think that is something that the first generation of psychedelics does not address well. And um, really, if there was a drug that I'm describing and we think we can make that, then this would really open up the possibility of applying psychedelics also in other areas such as mental health. And yes, I'm, I, I think that there might even be uh, improvements on, in mental health in you know making some drugs more safer last for a shorter time to afford you know get more affordable therapies but i think that the um possible for innovation uh is as you mentioned kind of small because we already have super powerful drugs that are super effective in mental health and that's why we as a company are not focused that much into that space even though um there might be applications of our compounds within mental health um, also uh, down the line. But what, what I really would want to do is that, okay, we have discovered this amazing mechanism that produces, you know, higher neuroplasticity in the brain. And this allows for the neurons to, um, you know, um, as you mentioned, in stroke, some parts of your uh, brain die out and you can, by inducing greater neuroplasticity, tell the surviving neurons to, you know, connect in such ways that they actually replace and restore the lost functions of those neurons that have died. And this is very much what psychedelics do. This is this is the what I talked about earlier, uh, creating more connections within the brain, more synapses, and we have very limited data to support that psychedelics will be effective in neurodegeneration. But I think it's a lot because people have been mostly focused on really proving to all those you know politicians and decision makers that these you know, compounds have value. And the best way is to do that in mental health. And that's why, you know, and the research was limited and kind of uh, hard to get approved. So uh, that's why not many people were really ventured into the neurodegenerative area. But uh, I am super convinced that it's going to have um, a great, great effect. Not that it would be disease modifying that would cure, you know, Alzheimer's or, or things like that. That's not really uh, 
very likely, honestly, uh, but uh, we don't have cures for neurodegenerative disorders of this magnitude. And what we do anyway is symptomatic treatment, which is, mm -hmm. has a lot of side effects. And then we have supportive treatments of some sorts that some look kind of promising, but for a long time, I believe the best thing we can get is focus on supportive treatments and uh, psychedelics are perfect for that. Also because they approach the problem, even though they might not cure the cause of the problem, they approach it holistically. So when you have a patient with neurodegenerative disorder, they will you know, be freaked out. They will have anxiety, depression, and all these other associated yes. mental health issues. And if you can um, you know, have a compound that will address both your mental state and the state of your brain, the neurology, uh, I think that's going to be a very powerful tool in, in helping these patients to, um, yeah, uh, keep their, keep their dignity and, uh, within this, you know, very, very horrible state that is, uh, neurodegeneration and dementia. That is, that's so awesome, man. I, I love every part of it. And there's a few things that I, I, I would like to address. Number one, I think you could say that depression and anxiety may be the warning signs of Alzheimer's before it happens. The same way someone loses loses movement in their arms when they have a stroke or that they're, you know, there's telltale signs of things that happen before the actual big event happens, whether it's on the planet or whether it's in your body. And maybe if we can use the psychedelics to address the anxiety, the depression, maybe it's like getting to the Alzheimer's before it happens. Maybe that's where the magic is. I, I, I couldn't agree more that they are going to see psychedelics. And this is just an opinion. I'm not a doctor. I'm a truck driver. But it's just, I, I wholeheartedly believe that you're going to see the use of psychedelics in treating neurogenerative diseases. Where I think there is going to be an issue and DARPA is actually doing a study on this right now where they anesthetize people and then give them the psychedelic to see if it has the same kind of effects. I'm of the opinion that you have to be conscious. You're going to have to do the work. Like you, you need to see the plants breathing. You need to face the demon, whatever the demon is. Maybe that demon manifests as you thinking you're an alien, you know, but whatever is going on in there, I think there's a component of consciousness that needs to be active while it's happening. I could be wrong. And maybe that's why DARPA's pumping $30 million into this study. And it didn't even make sense to me until you started bringing up the idea of traumatic brain problems or neurogenerative diseases. And like all of a sudden I was like, oh, on the battlefield, Alzheimer's disease. What's the biggest plague coming our way with all these baby boomers retiring? Like, you know, there, there's, they're really, even though when you talk to people like, Rick Strassman or all these geniuses that came before us and they say, listen, we've been here before. It's not a panacea. It's so easy to start to see what it could be used for. And I'm, I'm just so thankful that we're at mm -hmm. a time where we can begin to do it. And I, I, I'm so excited to talk to you, man. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched up on a very important issue that, um, um, a lot of uh, people are warning about and they're finding very, um, uh, I would say controversial ways how to deal with that. And that's the aging of the population, yes. right? So so our, our birth rates are dropping 
and uh, this might be maybe a bit of a, a conspirational theory, uh, but we've actually seen a lot of this pro-life and anti-abortion movements. And I mean, I can't help to associate it with the um, drive of the governments to you know, get people to make more babies so that they're not put because they see that we're dangerously approaching the point when people are just going to be aging and there's going to be a lot of old people and um, the demographics are going to be maybe unable to support the entire civilization yep. because those old people are going to require all this kind of uh, care. And now you have also... Uh, longevity companies and uh, researchers trying to, you know, extend the human lifespan even more. And what I think should be done in this longevity is really, really to focus more on the health span, on actually making sure that the people are healthy when they age, not how long they will live per se. I mean, that might be as a, as an afterthought or you know the, the secondary thing that you want to solve and uh for example dementia uh case caused by uh neurodegeneration or other means is really at this point once you're older than 60 your risk of dementia exponentially increases and there's been studies that it actually continues well you know if it gets, it gets worse and worse and uh, so there was this um, study of people aged n over 90 years and about 42% of them already had dementia uh, in some form. And, and then, you know, the, the incidence was still rising exponentially to uh, of your risk to get uh, dementia. So if we don't solve that, we're going to have a lot of old people and they're going to require a lot of care because this is so intensive to care about someone who has dementia. They're slowly losing touch with the reality, yep. losing their independence. And, and it's, it's actually, it's actually horrible. So I have also um, a bit more personal experience uh, seeing how the people are slowly, you know, losing it and and it's very scary and not only for the person themselves which i cannot even imagine but for all the people around them that need to you know be with them in their difficult states and uh, you know help them do basic things uh yeah so that is something that i really want to address and i see a big potential in in um using psychedelics for this and you you said that uh, yes um, there is an approach in trying to say, okay, like we don't need this psychedelic effects for this class of compounds at all. And I also uh, disagree with that. I think that, yes, um, there would be an effect, but uh, what is this, you know, selling point of the psychedelic drugs is that they actually do this chaos within the brain that causes, uh, inspires the, the brain to, you know, find other ways of connecting together and, 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 and start this rehealing process. And um, I've also used this metaphor about uh, psychedelics, uh, macrodose of psilocybin. Uh, it's okay, like, 
you're exploding the house that is your brain and then you know uh you're slowly you know building it up uh, again uh, throughout that experience and uh, that is most effective you know because then you would have the non-hallucinogenic or non-psychedelic psychedelics that you know you still have the brain but you're starting just trying to build some things on top of it, you know. So that's obviously not as effective to there's a broken house uh, trying to just build over over it. And uh, what we will be aiming for, and this is obviously very ex- abstract, is to retain that element of of breakdown of this entropy increase, but do the demolition demolishing of that in a more controlled way that the people could actually. Um, really be in control, but see that you know the their um, that there is some way of um, and this corresponds to the visions that you said uh, that is the um, chaos and um, a, you know kind of destabilizing of those previous neural circuits, uh, but you ideally would want to have it in a way that is not um, preventing you from functioning in if you want to use that in this neurodegeneration and traumatic brain injury treatment. And so that's why what we are aiming for is uh, I would call non-intoxicating effects of these psychedelics uh, as opposed to, you know, non-psychedelic or non-hallucinogenic. And I think... um, that there there is a there is a way there's a threshold even when doing psychedelics uh, as a microdose to the current psychedelics uh but i think that it's not enough that you're just mm-hmm. taking a microdose because there's this rapid onset of tolerance you cannot take it continually and uh there really is not um, enough of an effect as uh, we're getting from uh, various uh, studies to actually have a therapeutic uh, significant benefit. It can have effects on people's uh, you know, creativity and, and, and ways of thinking, and, and there's definitely effect for that. But if, you're, if you consider that your brain is degrading at a rate that no other uh, drugs that we try to develop over, you know, 100 years is able to stop that. Um, The results that we're getting for microdosing with the current drugs, it's very unlikely that it could affect uh, that um, to a significant degree, in my opinion. Uh, I might be wrong, but we don't have that data for for humans uh, yet. It's it's fascinating to me. I, you know, I, I did a self experimentation where I did like between a half a gram and a gram a day for thirty days, and I was surprised. And this is just my own subjective results, but I was surprised at how little tolerance that I actually felt. You know, I, and it, you know, if you read James Fadiman or you know, you do your research online, you can see that the average micro dosing procedure is probably like, you know, three days off and one day on or two days off and one day on. But I found it, I did find the 
realm of creativity was easily accessible. I did find that the colors and everything was turned on, if that kind of makes sense. And it seemed to me, depending on you know how much sleep I got and my diet, but the, the feeling was always there. But I want to shift gears and talk about, go back to the idea of getting the neuroplasticity and potentially have potentially having good or dramatic effects when you're in an unconscious state. So you had said that like at the high doses of psilocybin, like there's the explosion, the chaos happens in your brain. And then earlier in our conversation, we had talked about making sense of the environment. Isn't the making sense of the chaos where the actual integration is? And if, if you are unable to be conscious, if you're unable to make sense of the chaos, then you're not getting the benefits. If you just have the chaos in your brain, maybe you have the those tributaries or the neurons firing off and making new paths, but is, is that enough to get the changes you need for neurogenitive disease? Like, I, I think I'm just trying to make the case again for you, you have to have, you have to be in the realm of the big explosions and make sense of it in order to do the learning. Um, yes. Uh, very, very interesting thing to think about. I, believe that um, on some level uh, it's it's going to be uh, slightly effective even if you um, don't even if you are unconscious when you say um, slightly I'm sorry uh, when you say slightly what what per is that like a five percent or I mean I know we're just kind of mm -hmm. guesstimating but when you say mm -hmm. slightly like so so that's actually why um, we are introducing this other target into right. the equation because uh, there are other ways how to um, affect the unconscious uh, pathways that are contributing to the survival of neurons, uh, the you know neuroprotection and uh, neuroplasticity, and, and so and there are other drugs that induce neuroplasticity. Uh, for example, a range of antidepressants, but mm. other uh, other drug classes as well mm -hmm. that uh, help help this uh, process. So definitely, um, there are ways how to like, if we're talking about the uh, neurodegenerative uh, indications, uh, then this would have uh, some effect. I don't know uh, about the percentage. <laughs> I, I can't 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 guess, but. <laughs> Uh, what um, is, I think, shouldn't be lost is that as your uh, brain degrades in that state, you will uh, lose some of the neurons that have been doing some functions, right? And that's why you're like stopping to function properly in right. some aspects. And uh, one thing is to just slow down the degradation process mm. and that that, okay. that 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 you can do and that that's okay but um even you know subcon on subconscious levels and subconscious mechanisms if, if you want to call it that but uh, i think there is a lot of benefit if you were to be in this neuroplastic state induced by psychedelics that introduce a little of chaos mm -hmm. and but you can still function mm -hmm. uh, where you can find more efficient ways of 
performing the functions that you need to perform even with the limited amount of uh, brain cells uh, remaining yeah. and that is very much about actually actually learning it's like so um you are uh when you know some connection in your brain you know dies out you will need to find a way how to work around that yeah uh, and uh psychedelics if you have that uh state of the neuroplasticity can allow you to um or maybe also work with uh, input from some uh, therapist or a doctor find a different way and uh, maintain the uh, functioning through alternative um, neural pathways. And I think that uh, this, you know, this is the um, restoration of function of the brain, basically. Yeah. So, so uh, that I think is very crucial uh, and very beneficial to have uh, what you're talking about this uh, this sense of um, of the psychedelic state that is giving you new um, ideas, new associations, new perspectives on how things could be done. Um, so yes, I think that if you separate it into this neuroprotective part and then the neurorestorative part or function restoring property then uh, you probably uh, need it for the re function restoration to work to its maximum. Uh, and, but I'm talking here, I'm not talking about mental health. It's, it's different in mental health. I think uh, mental health treatments without this effect would be much, much less useful. And I just compared to taking normal antidepressants is like, Yes, uh, you're feeling a bit better and you might be able to um, find ways w of thinking differently, but mm -hmm. there's no there's no assistance in that. And it will be pretty much the same doing any kind of other talk therapy to change that because your brain is neuroplastic on its own, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the psychedelic effects of actual, you know, chaos within the brain that is what's you know the main driver yeah. allowing much more profound change and um it's about i think uh this very important aspect is that once you are uh if you're in your normal state you can only make such changes to your thinking that you can imagine you mm -hmm. need to you need to um you know imagine that a different way of thinking is possible and it is very hard job of a psychotherapist to explain to a person that they can think in a different way. They don't see it. They have a wall in there, right? And and then you take a psychedelic and it shows you that there's actually, you know, 10 different paths yeah. that way. And you can yep. chosen and, and, and you can you can choose that path during that experience and find that it's there. And then you can kind of you know integrate that and 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 really you know change your way of thinking. And if you if you don't have that, um, you know, those random associations running through your brain in that states or you're not aware of them because you're uh, drugged <laughs> under an anesthetic, <laughs> then, uh, then there's no way to 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 see those you yes. know, uh, yeah, yeah. hidden doors yep. that, that are where they're in your mind. <laughs> Man, I'm. You know, it seems that at least in the West, like when I think of the drug companies like Pfizer or all the drug companies over here, 
you know, for so long, we've used medicine as a coping strategy. Like, okay, I know you hate your life. I know you're depressed. I know you're anxiety, but just take this pill. And now you can continue to do the shitty life that you're doing and you'll feel better. But psychedelics seems to offer a new method of like, yeah, this is not a coping strategy. This is you realizing that you have a real problem and you can fix it. And here's how you do it. Like that's, that's real medicine. That's real work. And like, I'm so excited for the future. I'm so excited for what you guys are doing. Like I, this conversation has blown my mind. I, I, I am thankful. I know you're getting close on time. But I, I wanted to touch really quick on this idea that we may we may not even be able to get into it. But you know, you guys are working a lot with artificial intelligence, and in the world today, we see things like Chat GPT and automation, yada yada yada, and brain chips. But it seems to me there's a race between biology and technology. And on one level, you have the Elon Musk brain chip, but on another level, you know, you guys are building uh, cerebral organoids which you can test natural compounds on. So it seems to me like we're using AI to further the biological natural processes of healing. So it's just weird that, like, you know, it's, it's, it's weird and it's beautiful, but it seems like there's a race between biology and technology on some levels, but maybe it doesn't have to be. What mm -hmm, do you think? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think that... Um this uh, AI uh, that we're developing is actually our attempt to mimic the biology because that is so much older than us, so much more advanced. We don't understand what it is, but we have picked up pieces of how nature does things and, and how they work. And we have transformed them into this world of, of silicon and, and, um, virtually we can replicate them. And uh, if you look at concepts such as evolution that has, you know, generated super complex things, we can kind of, you know, do that in, in a computer and also generate, you know, all these various things through the process of crossover and mutation and selection of the fittest. Mm -hmm. and, and so that, that's some part we're doing, evolution machines. Um, and then another thing we've borrowed from nature is uh, the structure of the brain. And those are the neural networks that are changing the world right now. And, and it, it's just um, a simple concept in, in it that you just have, um, you know, various nodes that each, you know, processes information from uh, notes passing it to it, uh, which is like a neuron sending a signal to another neuron. And it just does some operation on it and then sends it onward. And, 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 and this kind of mechanism allows you to learn things, to remember things, to generate new things. And, and so we're kind of building essentially um, another brain for ourselves to think with <laughs> in, uh, in inside in, inside these computers and um, that's how it complements uh, the the biology research uh, is that you know we can outsource some parts of our thinking because it's getting so complex like what we're looking at is crazy uh, and, and, and by building, you know, okay, some helpers that, that, that can do that for us, that that's great. 
and uh, we can outsource, um, you know, various tasks for uh, uh, remembering and uh, recalling things. And uh, in the sense of looking for actual new molecules, this has been used for a long time because uh, it's much more closer to uh, molecular structure, is much more closer to kind of encodable language that you can feed into these machines as are other things. Uh, so you can actually um, uh, teach a model to predict some structures, uh, some properties of a structure without doing all these real world essays. So it's the predictive AI. You can also um, train a model to generate a set of molecules that have a set of properties and that's the generative AI. And um, this is really like so efficient now that, you know, um, medicinal chemists are, are slowly, you know, um, just just losing the, um, I guess, uh, edge of uh, being able to perform better than machines at this drug design. Um, and actually, uh, the best way as uh, as it was designed to get a medicinal chemist and you know give him a couple of other brains that he can work with and some of them you know could be his lab assistant uh, <laughs> but uh, some of them are just computer brains and and uh, by using them in smart ways we can um, get so much more done so much more quickly. And uh, and that that's what we're working on. But uh, yeah, there's no time to get into yeah, yeah. The, the 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 details. But maybe maybe in a in, a, in another chat. Of course, of course. Where can people find you? Um, and you got anything coming up? And where can people find you? Okay, so uh, you can find us on April AI. That's our website. Uh, but we're active on uh, LinkedIn as April 19 Discovery on Twitter as well, uh, April 19 Discovery. And um, we are now trying to uh, get uh, money to run the next stage of our uh, research. So to run all those real world experiments uh, with the compounds that I've been uh, designing and synthesizing and those that are coming out of the AI uh, tools and models that we've designed. Uh, we just now need to actually go to the lab and do the experiments. So um, definitely if anyone wants to help us with that, they can uh, reach out. And we're also open to collaborations. We're working with some universities and research institutions and other companies. So. Yes, uh, we're open to, to discussions to uh, push this thing forward. That's beautiful. If you're if you're listening to this and you are a fan of psychedelics, Tim Ferriss, if you're listening to this, this is the guy right here, Tim Ferriss. This is the next John Hopkins right here. If you're listening to this, reach out to them, <laughs> check them out. These guys are on fire. They're it's such a fascinating conversation. I'm excited you guys are out there. And we'll get it, we'll get together again soon and we'll have some more chats. I, I really enjoyed this. And um, I, I enjoyed it as well. It was it was great. It was great. Yeah, we got into some very deep and interesting stuff. With you. Yeah. 
it's so it's like it's fascinating. I'll I'll let you go. I know you got to leave. I, I would talk to you another two hours if I could, but we'll I'll, I'll be in touch, man. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, right, thanks for right, listening. All right. all right, thank you, thank yep. you. Bye, yep. aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.